Welcome to Intelligence Talks from the research team at Knight Frank. Intelligence Talks brings you the latest insights on property market trends and forecasts, along with expert analysis from industry leaders. I'm Anna Ward, Senior Residential Analyst at Knight Frank. Today we've collated the highlights from a webinar recorded on the 16th of July, Real Estate Investment and Strategy in a Post-Pandemic World. Our Head of Commercial Research, Will Matthews, is joined by LaSalle Investment Management Head of UK Research and Strategy, Simon Marks. Simon joined LaSalle almost 10 years ago, and he was initially focused on continental Europe. For the last few years, he's headed up the UK research team, but he spends about a third of his time on non-UK related matters. So a lot of the themes in this podcast will be dealing with very much global topics. Will and Simon talk about the impact of COVID on investment strategies in real estate, and Simon highlights the challenges of sitting in what we hope is a pre-vaccine world, thinking about what things might look like once a vaccine comes in. So I hope you enjoy the podcast. Over to Will. It's certainly been a very interesting time in the last couple of months, for sure. Can you give us a bit of a sense of some of the difficult questions that your clients and stakeholders are asking you at the moment and what's really sort of keeping them up at night? Well, coronavirus is, is obviously, well, we've not seen a pandemic like this for 100 years. But I, I think the challenging questions have been here for, for quite a few years now. I think back to Brexit and, you know, that was the first major challenge since the GFC as a researcher, helped to navigate our way through that to benefit investment performance. And then as we were coming through that, still not resolved, but we had then retail starting to unwind and, you know, the last year going to major collapse in the UK. And that's now been exacerbated by coronavirus and a whole new set of questions we're dealing with. And we're still reeling from that when Brexit comes around again. So really, it's a non-stop challenging questions. And the interesting thread for me between them all is contrasted to normal predictions or market views we had. These are all highly emotive subjects for some people. You know, Brexit divides people on a personal level. And we have to disassociate ourselves from that as investment managers and as researchers in particular and think about the uh, positives or negatives of trade agreements rather than political persuasion. And then with retail, whenever there's values falling and, and more to come, it can actually get quite challenging to not take it personally, the fact that when we have retail assets, we're losing money as with everyone else, losing value. And there are some really challenging questions that have come up recently again and again. And what is your minimum sale price in today's market? Because whatever you thought it was last year, you wish you'd sold at that price because it's lower this year. What is the required return in, in an illiquid, intransparent market where you can't even get debt on a retail asset? And then if you sell it, you make a mistake because now you're getting an income return that is 9 or 10%, which is fantastic in a low-income environment. But is it sustainable? These are really difficult questions to answer and, and can be quite emotive sometimes um, when we're looking at a, a quite a painful outlook for retail over the next couple of years. And then, of course, coronavirus, you know, we disassociate ourselves again and we talk about collapse of 10% GDP in the economy. But really, on a personal level, we're thinking about 60,000 excess deaths in the UK. Everyone knows someone who's been affected. We're all living in lockdown. That can take its toll. All of these things make it really challenging to be an independent view on the world amidst all of this chaos. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point about those emotive topics. And I think there's a really interesting area of behavioural economics, which is sort of springing up to try and address these issues at the moment, which are so pertinent, as you, as you say. One of the things that, that I think we both looked at in research over the past few years is how fund sector allocations have been shifting 
between the different property types. And I think, you know, that, that's that been going on for some time now. But do you see COVID-19 influencing that shift and sort of driving an acceleration of, of that move? Or is, that, is there something more fundamental at play here? Um, simplistically, you could say it's an acceleration of the pre-existing trends. There's nothing new here. E-commerce was a major threat for retail before. It's now just been turbocharged. Remote working existing before, that's been even more so turbocharged at the moment. And there's bigger question marks over the future of an impact of remote working maybe than e-commerce. But I think it's important to separate out when we think about the coronavirus and the impacts. You need to separate out the pre-vaccine and the post-vaccine periods. And let's, of course, hope that we get a vaccine or enough mitigating measures to make it effectively not a risk anymore. But it's hard to, when you're sitting in a pre-vaccine world, to think what it might be like post-vaccine with all of these trends. I personally believe that as human beings, we have short memories. If there's not an imminent problem in front of us, then we try to not think about it. Um, you know, climate change being a major example, so many people think it's, it's not going to happen for such a long time. We don't deal with it today. And that's similar to what we've got at, at the moment. Because when you're thinking about going back to work, okay, maybe we don't go and work in, in cities as much as we used to. But the reality for most people is they've got to get employment. They've got bills to pay. They need to live somewhere. They need to put food on the table. And when they go out for, you know, for leisure experiences, they want to live in the moment. You know, instant gratification has got negative connotations, but you know, the reality is we live for today and in that environment, if you think you've got a vaccination and a pandemic might not occur for another 100 years, I think you're going to pretty quickly forget what lockdown's like and go back to a certain amount of normality. Now, there will be lingering restrictions, particularly around travel and health. There will be behavioural traits that will persist well into the you know, post-vaccine period. But on the whole, I think we will largely return back to what we were before, albeit having accelerated trends like e-commerce and remote working and you know, business travel and so on. But I do think there's something more fundamental going on with this switch to alternatives. This isn't just about coronavirus or technology. But it's about how we live with technology, how we embrace it. And I think for alternatives, mostly living sectors, then demographics is a much bigger driver. That hasn't gone away. Maybe now there's more focus on quality of life. But again, coming back to what I said before about the practicalities of life, are we all going to move out to the countryside and work remotely? I don't think that's going to happen on, on a large scale. There's more of a focus generally on physical health, mental health. There's increasing attitude from consumers in the UK and investors, actually, to focus on positive social impact that we're having all of these trends push investors to the alternative sectors. And of course, then when you add in that everyone wants to hold a little bit less retail than we did in the past, that also naturally pushes us towards those alternative sectors. So those shifts are still at play, but we shouldn't necessarily focus on the knee-jerk reaction that maybe is, is sort of taking place at the moment. Yeah, I think that's right. We've jumped forward several years or, put it another way, compressed several years of evolution into much more of a rapid change. But I don't think there's anything radically different now. Again, the biggest question mark that we're trying to answer here is remote working and the impact on offices. 
because we've got very clear direction on the challenges of retail, um, the positives for logistics, the demographics in residential, all of that is pretty clear. But office working and remote working, I think, remains the biggest question. Sure, sure. Maybe that's a good point to bring up geography, because that was something that we discussed the other day, which I, I thought was quite interesting, and particularly your views on the importance of geography as opposed to sectors as we go forward. Do you want to just give us your thoughts on that as well? Yeah, I mean, there's the old adage, location, location, location. You just can't get away from. No one really thinks really in terms of, of sectors. So every, a lot of it's framed in terms of sectors, diversification, got to have a bit of office, bit of logistics. But really think about what does the investor want out of real estate? Granted, they've had a few years of very strong capital value growth. Actually, real estate's outperformed the other asset classes over a long period of time, which is remarkable because it should be delivering income, largely income, a little bit of capital growth. It's to pay pension funds. That's what we're doing it for. And if you're focused on income, you want to secure that income for as long as possible. I say you want a building in the best place with the best tenants that aren't going to go bust. But if they do go bust or they do leave, you want something that is so attractive as a location that it's relettable instantly or with minimal costs. Now, that can be a sector-specific location like an office district. But then when you think about how quickly some of these secular drivers are changing and evolving, you could get it wrong. So really, you want something that is relettable in any sector. It's a location that is desirable for anyone at any time. So what we're really focused on is the flexibility of that space, the optionality that you've got in the building of adding density, changing planning use, the residual value of the land. That's really important. So, of course, you have to understand the sector drivers. But when you're talking about enduring urban locations, then it's more about alternative use or mixed use changing proportions of mixed use within the same building. Just take retail as an example, bringing that down, adding in logistics or last mile logistics or residential student or something to go alongside that. That's more important for me. And then coming back to the point, well, if you're trying to deliver income and performance, then you're more focused on covenant strength, lease length, the liquidity of that building if you need to sell it at any point in time. Or if you're specifically looking to real estate as a bond substitute, which a lot of investors are, then how accurately does your asset with its lease and covenant mirror a bond or substitute for a bond? Those are all, I think, far more important topics than getting a little bit of each sector right or going for a single sector location that can only be retail, that can only be logistics. I think that is not the way we think about it in the South. So it, it sort of all comes back to this resilience point, I think, which we're hearing more and more at the moment. I mean, just sort of finally on this topic, we're at the end of the quarter, there's lots of data coming out thick and fast at the moment. Any, anything uh, that caught your eye or surprised you in any way from the recent releases? Well, what, what's surprising is actually how resilient things have been. And I think that is testament to the government policy. The unprecedented fiscal stimulus, you know, it's very abstract to say, well, it's 15% of GDP been pumping. We don't really know what that means. But all we can say is this has never happened before. It is unprecedented. But we also know it can't continue forever. The furlough schemes have to end. We're going to bankrupt the country if we don't taper off. And so the reality, I think, of what we're going through now has been kicked down the road. 
a phrase that we used a lot with Brexit, and maybe we have to use it here as well. I think that you can't avoid the pain, but you can spread it out to make it more palatable over a period of time. So I would say that the results we've seen so far in terms of rent collection, in terms of valuation decline, unemployment rates, those have all surprised on the upside over the last few weeks. Yeah, yeah, I agree, agree. So that, there are some, some very interesting positives to take away there. Sort of slightly changing tack, I suppose, you know, thinking about, you know, the heart of what, what our kind of roles in, involve, it's really sort of synthesizing information so that people can make effective decisions off the back of that. And so thinking about the research and strategy work that, that you've been doing lately, what have been your key takeaways in terms of, you know, the way that people want to consume that information and, and the frequency and, and the media? Well, this, this changes on a daily basis almost. There's a common theme here that, that when markets are collapsing, albeit not as fast as we expected them to be in regards to my last response, but you're in the midst of, of something really quite seismic and epic, then people want information instantly. Even if it's noise and they're not going to make a long-term decision about real estate based on another day's infection rates or whatever it might be, people want to know and the information is there. It is at our fingertips. The question is more about how you sift through that, the noise of information and deal with it. And there's a whole raft of new data sources that we didn't have before. You know, John Hopkins, infection rates, tracking coronavirus. You've got Apple and Google mobility scores now. Flight radar to look at number of departures and around the world and from airports. Open table to look at how many people are booking restaurants. Everyone's got access to these, and it is fascinating how we use them. The question is, what's the so what in them? You know, is it just information for the sake of it, or is there something really valuable in there that can inform an investment strategy for what is predominantly a, a long-hold asset class like real estate? And, and then they're coming from different areas of, of the economy as well. You know, we have to be experts now in healthcare and in politics, and that just didn't exist a few years ago. So the skill set of researchers is changing rapidly. I, I agree, and I, yeah, many of us uh, don't necessarily relish the prospect of being uh, political ex experts at the moment, but uh, yeah, I think, yeah, you make some, some really interesting points there. I mean, to me, it feels as though sort of real estate analysis has become sort of more sophisticated in, in recent years and perhaps boosted by you know, maybe a greater number of people with financial backgrounds involved in the sector, at least sort of post-GFC. I mean, how, how do you see the focus of research and decision-making evolving over the next few years? And I suppose thinking about specifically the kind of approaches that you use to, to make those decisions. Well, you know, there's, there's macro and there's micro. I tried to simplify it that way. From the macro side, you would still get major fiscal policy decisions like what we've got with furlough schemes and government support at the moment, or, say, the political views of populism and deglobalization, those will move markets and economies in very fundamental ways. So we do have to evolve to understand those and predict those as best we can. That might mean bringing in new skills into the research team. But then right on the flip side, it's the micro level. We are dealing with very large data sets now that we weren't before. I'll stop short of calling it big data because... Uh, other industries look at us and think, that's not big data. Yeah. That's 30,000 rows in an Excel spreadsheet. That's not 
really big data, but certainly large data sets from our point of view. And how do you clean those, manipulate them, extract information, and then communicate that and visualize that? So we need new software that we're getting used to, coding skills within research teams now. You know, data science is absolutely fundamental to dealing with that micro question. If you enjoyed this episode of Intelligence Talks, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please also make sure to share this episode on social media and check out the show notes for more information. 